Welcome to SEC Football Live, a little special edition here previewing the Texas and Washington game. But also, we're going to talk about the Texas Longhorns' evolution as a program as it enters the SEC. My name is Braden Gall. You can get to me on Twitter.com, of course, at Braden Gall. And if you're watching on the YouTubes, please hit that little subscribe button, especially you Texas fans who are new to SEC Football Live. We do appreciate you hanging out. I am fascinated by the journey that the Texas Longhorns have been on. I used to live in Austin when I was in middle school, and and I think watching this team grow through the Mac Brown and, and Vince Young years uh, into what is now the Steve Sarkeesian National Championship contending years and entering the SEC, I find it all utterly fascinating. So a guy I used to work with, Jeff Ketchum, of course, owner and publisher of OrangeBloods.com, a guy I've known for almost two decades, uh, expert on all things Texas. We had a fun conversation previewing not only the matchup with Washington, what could come in the National Championship game should they figure out a way to beat the Washington Huskies, but also the evolution of the program and how this team, how this Texas team got from dysfunction and Charlie Strong and Tom Herman to Steve Sarkeesian and one win away from the national championship one year away from entering a 12-team playoff and the SEC. So no more of me. Here is my conversation with Orange Bloods, Jeff Ketchum. Jeff, welcome to the show, my friend. Good to have you. Happy holidays. Uh, getting ready for a big game, of course, on New Year's Day. How are you, sir? I'm good, man. It's good to be back with you. It's been too long. I'm glad that the Longhorns have done something this year that <laughs> warrants me coming on with you. Well, it's funny. Last time we talked, and that's actually right where, right where I want to start, we will discuss the matchup with Washington because it is quite difficult to, to pinpoint, to be honest with you. Um, but I want to start, we talked about two years ago, right after the announcements of, of Texas and Oklahoma coming to the SEC. And a big part of our conversation was sort of the alignment inside of the power structure inside of not just the university of Texas, but like the entire, you know, university system in the state. And they kind of figured out how to, how to all row in the same direction. And I'm curious between that moment and today where they're, you know, they now won their first championship in over 12 years. They're in the playoff for the first time. They are favored to make the national championship game. What is different and what has changed about the University of Texas between the moment they announced they were going to the SEC and to be at the point where they are today? You know, it's, it's like when a, a plan that you feel good about actually comes together and doesn't, you know, ha have some unforeseen thing happen um that kind of drags it all down there there really is alignment behind the scenes um at all levels of the university everybody's kind of all in on Steve Sarkeesian and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that and he was essentially hired by the head of the board of regents Kevin Eltife is kind of with all due respect to Chris Del Conte, who has a tremendous athletic department and just won a volleyball national championship and can like raise his hand and say, I'm doing a really good job. The dismissal of Tom Herman and the hire of Steve Sarkeesian kind of was above his head. If we go back to Herman's last year, they were going to, Chris Del Conte was going to bring him back in part because it looked like the options to replace him were really, really limited. And the people above Chris Del Conte were like, no, no, too much has happened. Yeah. We just, we can't really stand this guy. And so they made that call and they kind of hired Steve Sarkeesian, which boy, it helps to, it helps the head coach from a buy-in standpoint when the very top of the food chain is as invested in him as 
the athletic director. Like this is their legacy. Once upon a time, Tom Hicks was kind of responsible for hiring Mac Brown more so than DeLos Dodds. And it's his part of his legacy. And I think we've seen some rich guys in the past try to chase a legacy and it hasn't worked out. L-Type really is. He's a former politician. He really is kind of the puppet master, but all of the puppets are in unison, right? He's got the school president and the AD. They're all in lockstep together. And they've said, look, we're going to spare no expense. We'll give Steve Sarkeesian everything that he wants um, because we're pot committed at this point. And along the way, in addition to Sarkeesian having a plan that's worked and it being very serendipitous this year in terms of things have really worked out for them, but he's had support with support staff. They've they've been a leader in NIL. And, and quite frankly, I love that Sarkeesian doesn't run from it. You know, some people, you mentioned NIL and it's like the boogeyman. It's like, if you can remember Jimbo Fisher, it was like, how dare you say that our number one recruiting class came here because of money. Find a man who came in. And, and Sarkeesian's like, yeah, man, it helps. If, <laughs> if, if we're going to have it, let's have a lot of it. And, you know, this team isn't in New Orleans on Monday night. If they don't get Adonai Mitchell. I mean, sometimes it can just be as simple as that. But just for all of the things that have gone right, the addition of that guy opposite Xavier Worthy yeah. changed the entire offense. You're talking about a double-digit touchdown guy. You're talking about a weapon in big games. Go back to the Alabama game. Oh, yeah. Adonai Mitchell making a really huge play. If you t- if you just take that one piece away, this whole thing might not quite come together the way that it has. But they did have that one thing. And how did that happen? Well, Adonai Mitchell wanted to come close to home. He was going to transfer from Georgia. Texas is home. And oh, by the way, Texas could offer him and put together a badass NIL package. Right. All of that, all of these little things have really worked for Texas. If there's no NIL, if, you know, NIL's four years away, we just haven't gotten there yet. They're not here, but it is here. And Texas has been very aggressive with it. And it's paid off in in enormous ways. And I think for the first time, you've got a program that's functioning at a high level and feels like it can continue to do the things that got them there, as opposed to this is a one-year trick. We'll fall back next year. This is one year, and now it's a rebuild. I think Texas feels like they pieced together a working plan. They know how they got here. They don't really run from it. And I think for the first time in a long, 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 long time, Texas is a fairly well-oiled machine behind the scenes. And the football has really benefited from it. I would, I would say, one thousand percent. It's funny, like, because my next question was going to be, like, the sustainability moving into a much more difficult situation in the SEC. But it's, it's, it sounds like all of the things that sort of kept Texas from achieving ultimately what is the most power. I mean, it is the most powerful athletic department in the country, and it is largely underachieved on a football field. Like that's oh. just sort of the way it is. 
I think Michigan is exactly, you know, they're not too far off from this conversation. Um, but ultimately, it sounds like all the stuff, and we had some anonymous scouting reports in our magazine at Athlon Sports in the preseason about sort of the, the, the culture issues that maybe Texas A&M does have or did have, I would say, with Jimbo Fisher. That stuff has been sort of the entitlement has been removed. The organizational structure is there. It sounds like all of that is set up for sustainability in an even more difficult situation in the SEC. Yeah, and it didn't happen overnight. And I think there has to be some luck involved because if you go back to Sark's first year, you know they had some real locker room issues. He had one of his one of his good players on the offensive side of the ball at one point got into a shouting match with him. Then it was they kept him around, and then the kid kind of embarrassed him by, after playing in a game and not getting suspended, leaving the program. And it was like, well, you know, if you're going to do that, maybe you could have put a foot down and right, showed right. your players. And it took some time. And I think Sarkeesians learned on the fly. He, even this year, it's like, is he a good head coach? Like, that simple. Is he good? Because he hasn't really been good. And this year, like every every stroke has been a good stroke. Um, I think him being with Nick Saban has benefited him immensely because I think he's just stealing a lot of what he picked up from Saban. And he's worked with a lot of uh, great head coaches. It's one of the things when you look about and, and just coaches in general – He's worked with a lot of successful people, and yet it feels like this. a lot of this is from the Saban doctrine. Even in the lead-up to the playoff game, I think he's leaning into, well, I did this with Saban, and it really, really worked. Don't mess with a good thing. And so I think that you know a lot of what we've seen this team do this week, this is by what he's learned through design. And – Credit to Steve Sarkeesian. One of the things a lot of people think I'm hard on him because after a five and seven season, I said, that's not good enough. And after last season, I was like, well, this isn't why he was hired. He was not hired to go eight and five. I think he's done a great job. What he does better than most coaches that I've covered. He changes his mind and adapts on the fly against previous ideologies very quickly he wasn't a transfer portal guy at all and if you look at year one when he comes to texas he's bringing in these sec retreads guys that failed at alabama failed at lsu but they're sec guys and in the big 12 even sec leftovers are better than what big 12 has on its best day and it wasn't working and it was like god you know you've got You've, you've got nuclear weapons. Be a nu- be a superpower. <laughs> right, right. And pretty quickly, he went from this portal stuff is not for me, very Dabo-like, honestly, to, you know what, Adonai Mitchell, yeah, whatever it takes, let's go get him. And, and there's a number of players, even in the portal this past year, Trey Moore from UTSA and Matthew Golden and Andrew McCuba, that obviously they won't play in this year's playoffs. But those players, all three of them, the three guys that they've added, all amongst the top players available in the portal, all guys that will come in next year and be impact guys. And two years ago, 
he would have preferred to have taken a three-star receiver who's a one in 10 shot of making it because yeah. that's what he was comfortable with. So I think the thing that I actually am most impressed with in covering Sarkeesian is his adaptability. He is much, much better on the fly at recognizing, you know what? I was wrong. Let's do it. And I think he does it with support yeah. staff. You know, I, he didn't want Gary Patterson in the beginning. But you know what? It worked. It was a good thing for the program. And I think you saw this year, they they bring in Paul Christ. And a lot of coaches might have been, I don't need the extra voices. I don't, I don't need the distractions. I don't want someone looming over my shadow. Uh, and yet everything has kind of worked. And he's embraced, I think, things that originally he was resistant against. So I'm curious about this particular team. And I think it's one thing to look at the Kansas state game and be like, Oh, Quinn Ewers didn't play. And it, you know, Kansas state extremely well coached took advantage of, of a quarterback situation in the second half and made some plays that that is what it is. But is there a common thread that you can pick up on as to why games like Houston or TCU, uh, maybe Iowa state to some degree, like g give me like a, because when they are good and when they're on, you see the first half against Oklahoma State. You see on the road against Alabama. You see the Texas Tech game on offense. Like, it's just, I don't have to explain to people that yeah. when they're on, why it's working. I, you just don't have to. You, your eyeballs do the job. So the question is, what's the common thread in the moments where they weren't working all season long? This is the scary thing about the upcoming game for Texas against Washington. And I, and I think Texas is going to win. And you may ask me later for a prediction. I think Texas is better than Washington. I think they've got some matchup advantages um, that they'll take advantage of. But when Texas has played a quarterback with a pulse this season, they've had teams that have been able to exploit some deficiencies in the back end of the defense. Let's just call them out. Because quite honestly, the Big 12 was a dumpster fire at quarterback this year. If you if you even remember the Kansas game, everybody was like, uh-oh, here comes Jalen Daniels. And then he got a back injury in the pregame. That was 30 minutes before that game started. And it was like, it was the opposite of Daniel LaRusso's going to fight. It was like, wait, <laughs> Jalen Daniels is not going to play? They played Jalen yeah. Milrow, who had some success throwing the football against this Texas defense. And then in the fourth quarter, Texas played a great fourth quarter, but they were trailing. And, and Milrow had it cooking in the second half. Set that aside for a second, but acknowledge that before Milrow got benched for a week and Alabama was doing whatever they were doing, Milrow was having success in the, in the area that nobody really thought going into that game that he would. He threw for like 270 or something like that. Then you played Dylan Gabriel, and Dylan Gabriel had – you know, with his legs was a real problem, but he was, he was really good in that game, just full stop. And Texas, when they got the lead back late in the fourth quarter, ultimately a good quarterback took Oklahoma down the field and got them into a position to win that game. Houston, Donovan Smith, when he gets hot, when he gets on a heater, he can be a scary player. And in the second half of that game, they started hitting Texas over the middle, getting them with rub routes and crossing routes, and Texas just was befuddled. They couldn't stop it. Houston got a terrible spot in that game late on a fourth down call yeah. that I think they should have got a first. That It was a full yard and a half short of where the guy actually got. 
And Texas got a break from Big 12 officials in a way that people thought they wouldn't this season. I watched it happen. And then you mentioned the Kansas State game. In the second half, Will Howard got cooking. Now, did he get cooking because he's good, or did he get cooking because there's this deficiency in the Texas defense? Probably a little bit of both. But he gets down to the seven-yard line. First and goal, four plays to go seven yards. And I thought Kansas State botched it from a coaching standpoint. Suddenly, their play calling got very squirrely. To Texas's credit, to Vondre Sweat, oh, made dude, a was, big play. Oh. But that's four instances this, this season where they've played anywhere from pretty good quarterbacks to very good quarterbacks. And the secondary and the defense has really given up yards and points, and the games have gotten a little scary. Well, look, man, I think Michael Penix didn't have nearly as good of a season as maybe people think he did, but he's gotten a lot of credit, deservedly, for carrying Washington into this moment. But this is a Washington team that comes in with a good quarterback, to say the least, and they're healthy at wide receiver. And getting Jalen McMillan back and pairing them with a Dunze and, and Jalen Polk, I think you know, you're going to get them at full strength. It, it's on paper, Washington has to feel good that they're going to score some points uh, against this Texas yeah. defense. And it goes against reason to suggest that they won't. And, and what's fascinating is that if you go back and watch the Washington-Oregon tape, it's the, what I loved about Ryan Grubb, the offensive coordinator, and what he did against Oregon the second time around was they they intentionally got to the edge in the in the rushing attack in creative ways, uh, traditional power sweep like student body left ways, like they were doing it all different types of mo reverse motions, like all kinds of fun stuff to get on the edge, which of course is the only way you can really run the football against Texas because you cannot run the football at Sweat and Murphy in the middle and expect to accomplish anything. It's probably the best defensive tackle tandem in the country, if not clearly the best. But like Texas has to know that Washington knows, like they all know, right? So, yeah. and and Dylan Johnson's going to be healthier. That's Washington's running back. He's going to be healthier than he's been in the past. He's been a big part of why Penix has been able to find success in those critical moments. What what is the twist here? Because I don't think they can run right at those guys. But this I, is this you're gonna this, you may not even agree with me on this, but this is just my perspective of watching Texas play all year long. Washington's not going to be able to, I mean, I, I don't anticipate them being able to run on Texas consistently full stop, no matter inside, outside. I think Texas is going to stop that. What Washington can't do, don't beat your head into the wall. Okay. You're not successfully running the football. The coaching thing, the football brain in everybody says, well, you have to, right? You got to stick with it. It's got to be like Novocaine in the third quarter. They'll feel it. No, <laughs> if you're Washington, throw the damn football. Yeah, trust, trust your eyes and not necessarily the ego and the brain of what you've told yourself you have to do. Because I'm telling you right now, the teams that have had the teams that have come closest to beating Texas have been the teams that have been forced into throwing the football. And when they've been forced to throw the football, it's been like, holy crap. This is incredibly rewarding. They can't stop us. And it's been a little different in every game, but I think the Texas worry, and I, they're going to stop the run. Matter of fact, I'm on prize picks. I've got Johnson minus less on the 73 yards. Texas is going to stop that down. 
But if you take every Washington receiver on prize picks with the more, I totally get it. And if Texas moves the ball on Washington the way that I think they will, because the other side of this is Washington has the same damn problem against Texas. They already give up a lot of passing yards. And I think, you know, Sanders is, Jatavian Sanders is healthier. You're getting Xavier Worthy closer back to 100%. You've got Adonai Mitchell, who's playing at an incredibly high level. Uh, Washington's, Quinn Ewers is going to have a big game. And this this may end up being one hell of an all-time fun offensive back and forth. But the two teams both are going to struggle with the same thing. I just think if you're Washington and you tell me Penix throws the ball 45 times, I think that's more worrisome for Texas than it is for Washington, who may come into this game saying, you know, our sweet spot might be somewhere around 35 to 40 passing attempts, and we really need to make sure that we can keep that defense. Don't worry about keeping the defense honest. If you're Washington, worry about taking advantage of, I think, the biggest advantage you have, and it is not Dylan Johnson running the ball at that Texas defense. That's a waste of time. That's a waste of an opera. It's one waste of a rep where Michael Penix can be throwing to receivers who have real advantages, I think, in the passing game against this Texas defense. I I am hopeful. I think fans, impartial observers, are hopeful that it is an Oklahoma-Georgia Rose Bowl type of playoff game. Went to two overtimes. Ultimately, Georgia's ability to run the football late in that game and just the talent level is sort of why Georgia outlasted them. I could feel the same kind of thing happening here with Texas. Um, do you have any sense of, like, first of all, who who does Texas, like, let's say they beat Washington. I got, right now they're favored. I, I would pick Texas to win. I think it's going to be a great game. I wouldn't put it past Washington to win the game for the all the reasons you've laid out. Um, but this game, in the national championship game in Houston, in Texas A&M's backyard, joining the SEC next year, you got the game back on Thanksgiving against Texas A&M. And as a kid who grew up, you know, going to games in middle school in Austin, like learning, you know, Aggie jokes, not your mama so fat jokes. Like that's the jokes I learned growing up as a kid is I can't wait. I can't wait for all that stuff. But the the layers that would be added to all of this story, if Texas is competing for a national championship in A&M's backyard, do you first of all, do you want Michigan or do you want a rematch with Bama? And can you try to put into perspective for folks that are around the SEC or around the country that don't understand the Texas, Texas A&M thing and what it would be like for Texas to win a national championship in Houston, in the Aggies backyard while joining the SEC the same year? Like just that's a that's a nutso story. Well, and boy, there's so many tentacles to this because, look, the team, I think Texas make everybody take a lie detector test. Michigan, I think, is the obvious. I think everybody thinks it's Michigan. Um, I actually, you know, the underlying numbers say that J.J. McCarthy's really good and that Michigan doesn't maybe use him at, to the extent that his talent and ability and and functioning success suggests that they should. So I, I, I kind of look at Michigan and I go, careful pulling the tiger's tail on this one because – if you're telling yourself, well, we're going to make J.J. McCarthy beat us, he might. He's really good. Like, yeah. don't let the Michigan offense sometimes deviate from his the, – the, the data says he's really good, and they just don't use him like a really good quarterback all the time. But there's a there's a save and fear factor, and, and Texas fans won't necessarily want to admit it out loud, 
Jalen Milrow scares them. Jalen Milrow was really good against Texas before he got really good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. they benched him after the Texas game, but he wasn't Alabama's problem in that game. Uh, I think the idea of, you know, we say it in the NFL, beating a team three times is really, really hard. I think beating a Saban team twice, uh. once on a neutral field, once on the road, like it asks, it feels like a big ask. Uh, no offense to Jim Harbaugh, who I think is a football savant and, you know, take teams to the playoffs in college football into the Super Bowl in the NFL was not being like legitimate. <laughs> great. Um, but I think, I think there's a Saban fear factor. I think there's a thought process that Michigan couldn't keep up with the Texas offense if it's having a good day, that they have to scratch and claw for points a little bit more than Texas would. I have a lot of respect for all four teams. So yeah, I don't have a good answer for who I think Texas should play because I look at that Michigan defense and go, you know what? If there's a team in college football that can put the clamps down on – Xavier Worthy and Adonai Mitchell. It might be Michigan, man, because every NFL person I've talked to all year long about Michigan raves about their personnel, even on the offensive side of the ball. They don't lack the personnel to win a national championship, not at all. Uh, I do think what would be really cool, and I haven't looked to see if any team has ever done this, but I don't think they have. If Texas played Michigan in a national championship game, they would have an opportunity to beat essentially all of the one seeds. Yeah. They would have beaten Alabama, Washington, and Michigan, which would make for a really special season. There certainly couldn't be with all – I feel for Florida State. I really do. You know, But I think it would be a really emphatic showing to say they beat all of the teams that were in the playoff um like I don't think anyone's I don't think any team has ever beaten all three conference champions from or well, three of the four yeah. conference champions from the other during power the leagues. course of one single season yeah I, I mean I know I know if you think about it you got Alabama beat I guess would have beaten Georgia well they, they were again that wasn't uh, yeah, again, they, again, they, uh, 2017 maybe because they beat Georgia, the SEC champ. They beat Clemson. That would have been two, but that's it. So I don't. You got to get kind of lucky with yeah. a non-conference. It's just right. It's, no, it's just it's luck. It could have just as easily have been Georgia, and then we wouldn't be having this exact conversation about right. the ability right. to do this. It's kind of ironic because the Texas volleyball team just beat three number one seeds. They beat Stanford in Stanford in the regional final. And then they beat Wisconsin and then they beat Nebraska. And it was like, wow, they just went through essentially the, what was thought to be the three best teams in college uh, volleyball to win the championship. The Texas football team, in theory, would have a chance to do the same thing. You don't want Bama a second time. That's my I feeling. I don't think so. I, know, I think I, I don't, I'm with you because I think the secondary is so much better today than it was then. I think they've got the personnel to also match up in the passing game against Texas. I think the defensive front is just as good as Michigan's, and I think Milrow is Milrow is the is the difference. I think his legs, he's like a little Michael Vick Jr. Um, so I yeah, love him. We'll see. Yeah, he's fun to watch, and he's easy to root for too. Uh, okay, well, la last but not least, here, just give me and a real quick, quick, real quick, if I can, sure. on the Alabama matchup. Texas fans won't want to admit this, but Texas won won that game because Quinn Ewers threw a couple of moon balls that. Both Adonai Mitchell and Xavier Worthy ran underneath. Texas hasn't hit on that kind of a pass play since that game. They hit 
two essentially of the same kind of deep ball really to win that game. They haven't been able to repeat that twice. There's not a single game since where you'd go, they approached and beat teams with the deep ball the same way they beat Alabama. That's a long way of me saying, I'm not so sure they can completely replicate what they did that night in Tuscaloosa a second time. Those are low percentage throws that Texas connected on to think that they'll have to find new and different ways to beat that team a second time. And I think that's easier said than done. All right. So are they actually in the national championship game? Yeah. I think they're going to beat Washington. And for as much, ultimately, I think they are better able to create stops than the Washington defense. And it may be forcing Washington to punt three times where Texas punts twice. I don't know. Like, however it completely comes together, I think they get a few more stops. I think Texas could come out hot in this game. Sarkeesian's at his best in his opening play script. Sometimes it's 15 plays, and sometimes it's 10, and sometimes it's 20. You'll know when the script is up. Because you'll be like, (laughs) Texas hadn't had a first down in a couple of drives. Like, they were really cooking. And then it might slow down a little bit. But I think Texas probably jumps out to a big lead in this game. They might score... 20, I could see them scoring 21 in the first quarter and then Washington being in chase mode for a lot of the game. I think it gets to be a really close game. Yep. And I think in the end, I'm taking Texas probably through confirmation bias as much as anything else, because it could really just turn into a coin flip. And, you know, if it's a true coin flip, I can say all I want that, it's going to be heads, but there's a yeah, 50% yeah, yeah. chance that you, it won't be. You, you said it's two or three stops. I think it might be just one stop. It might just be, be whichever team gets that one stop in the fourth quarter is the one that wins. And I'll take the the defensive line for Texas over what Washington's got, which is also very good, by the way. So, hey, Catch, thank you so much, man. Uh, always a pleasure hanging out with you. The, the storyline here for Texas could not be more perfect heading into the end of a playoff era, the end of the Big 12 era, and the future of the SEC. So, uh, enjoy it while you can and have a good new year, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Likewise. And just as it relates to the Aggies, cause I didn't answer that. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't even need to nope. be said nope. it. They've Texas kind of has a mini foot on the throat right now, winning a national championship in Houston oh. as they go into the sec more than anything. I think the sec would welcome Texas and say, you actually are one of us. And I think that's still a thing AM's chasing. And for Texas to get that acknowledgement without having to earn it on an SEC schedule will forever burn in their craw if it happens. Especially if you beat the SEC champ twice. Oh, it just, so we'll- <laughs> I don't have to tell you. You know. No, no, we'll you do know. it. Hey, Catch, thank you so much, man. Happy New Year, bud. Likewise, my man. Take care.